0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik.
1: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I'm your host as always, Aaron Cameron, and with me is Adam Pawatik. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Charlie Deeks, who is the Chief Investment Officer at Pirate, a Blackstone-Ivanhoe-Cambridge portfolio company. Sorry, it's a mouthful, I apologize. Before we get to Charlie, and thanks for joining us, Charlie. I just want to remind our guests, Adam and I are going to do a 10, 15-minute digest of our conversation with Charlie, which we're kind of dubbing the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show. So after we're done with Charlie, stick around. You're going to kind of hear some of the thoughts that Adam and I have about the conversation. Anyway, Charlie, thanks for
2: joining us. Thanks, guys, for having me. It's a pleasure to be joining you here on Friday afternoon. I've been a big fan of your podcast, especially during the cold, dark days of COVID, where it's helped me out, especially on the bike trainer in the basement. So. Glad to be a part
1: of it. I'm glad you you're already my favorite guest. That's a, that's a great <laughs> intro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tell your friends. You've listened to some of these podcasts. You know the drill. So let's just go back. How did you get into real estate? How did you end up where you are today? What's your career trajectory look like? Yeah,
2: great question. So I've been in commercial real estate for 15 years. Out of university, I thought I'd get into the resort development. I'm a big golfer and I always love that side of the business. But obviously in Canada, with our climate and difficulties not being an American, that didn't pan out. So I was kind of at a precipice. I thought I could either go down the leasing route. I had some good friends that had started in that and were having good success at an early age, or more on the analytical route. So I actually started off at Altus Group, primarily focused on the office side of the business had a great experience there working with some great people and seeing a lot of product. I recommend Altus or any appraisal capacity to a lot of young people I meet just as a good training ground. But it did give me a great technical base and also taught me how to present information clearly and and defend your case. And I was there during 08, 09. So I guess this is my second crisis at only 15 years in the business. But from there, I went to Oxford Properties working in the investments group and got exposed to some really great investments and really saw how the best is done from a a development and asset management perspective had a lot of retail experience there then moved to standard life investments well it's now part of manulife acquired a few years ago but they were starting a new fund it was more of a value add fund and i got tapped on the shoulder to come and kind of get that started had a great team there and we're doing some pretty cool things that's kind of when industrial was the ugly stepsister of the real estate world Joined Pirate in 2016. Pirate was initially a publicly traded REIT. And in May of 2018, was taken private by Blackstone, Ivanhoe, Cambridge. And it's been two years under that banner. And I'll be honest, it's a great time to be in the industrial asset class. Yeah,
1: you can say that again. Charlie, you look like you're 29. That sounds like the career of a (laughs) 60-year-old. Some fortunate transitions there.
2: Definitely. Well, it's funny, there was a
1: point in time where
2: I had four business cards in four years, and my poor family had no idea how to get a hold of me. So they kept going back to my Hotmail address. But yeah, going through two corporate takeovers, once, as I said, with Standard Life to Manulife, and then Pirate to Blackstone, Ivanhoe, Cambridge. Certainly been eye-opening at a young age. Definitely seen... The best of people, the not so great side of people, but definitely battle scars, I guess
0: you could say, that I've earned and kind of use on a day-to-day basis. So it's been good. How many times in that year did you say the wrong name of the company that you were supposed to be at? Several times. (laughs) Several times, yes. (laughs) Our
1: listenership, I think, varies from young people that are entering the industry to more experienced people like yourself. But for those that are kind of new in their careers maybe just give some guidance on what it's like when you enter into a new environment, you got new people and you got to learn the systems again and learn the environment. And it just, that change, it shakes you a little bit. What got you through that?
2: That's a really good question. It's kind of a predicted answer, but I kind of refer to a conversation I had with my father early on in my career. And his advice was be patient. And that's kind of something that I've continued to strive towards. And that's something I tell my young guys, look, it's tough as an analyst. It wasn't so long ago that I was an analyst facing uncertainty. So I have that not that far of elapsed time from where I am now that, that I can empathize with these guys and I can see how difficult it can be. But now is the time, for, especially for younger people, really ask questions. Find yourself in an environment where you can ask questions and feel free to ask questions without feeling that you're going to be reprimanded for doing so. Take that time to really get out from behind your computer. I know it's hard, but make those contacts. These contacts that I met at GEMS events, I don't know if you guys remember that, they're some of my greatest business allies and friends today. And that really goes a long way when you're in the middle of a deal and something's going sideways. You know you have that relationship that you can bank on and figure things out. So I guess really patience would be the most important kind of thing that young people can think of.
1: I have to do this only because I know he's an avid listener. Shout out to Michael Lee, who's currently, I think, running Gems. And I have the exact same experience, Charlie. Gems was one of those industry events where I've met a ton of people that are still really, really close to me. Yeah, good comment. Just get involved, I guess, is the best answer. Yes. So let's talk about Pirate. Maybe just kind of give us the three-minute elevator pitch of Pirate's sort of culture and their sort of the strategy and who they are.
2: Yeah, so PIRATE stands for Pure Industrial Real Estate Trust. We're actually going through a rebranding right now, but more to come on that later. We're about 20 million square feet focused in Canada's core markets, Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal. We used to own a sizable portfolio in the US, but we disposed of that last year. In terms of culture, yes, we're part of the Blackstone, Ivanhoe, Cambridge banner of companies, but we're only a 50-person company. We're a big company with a small company attitude and mindset. It does sound a little bit cheesy, but I find through a corporate takeover, it's really caused a lot of us, especially at the senior management team, to really become closer than ever before. And what we have now is something that's truly special, and we're so fortunate to be where we are. With the culture with Blackstone and Ivanhoe Cambridge obviously Blackstone everyone listening is familiar with Blackstone they're the largest private equity owner of real estate in the world and I'll be honest with you Aaron when I heard about the sale a few years ago I was worried okay here comes big bad New York private equity and they're going to cut costs and pump us until we overinflate but that has definitely not been the case and I don't mean to brown nose but working with Blackstone has been incredibly enjoyable. From the personnel standpoint, these are incredibly bright, intelligent, very young, but they all have really good heads on their shoulders. The amount of exposure that everyone working there gets, not only Canada, but all over the world, it's basically a think tank of information, a wealth of information, and a broad book of context that we've used and continue to use. Our bread and butter is smaller deals. That's just how Canada works. We don't have large portfolios like you have in the U.S., And they're smart enough to know that, look, they can't do $20 million deals in Brampton from a desktop in Manhattan. So the trust that they've given us and our team, not only for me on the investment side, but also asset management, leasing, has really allowed us to kind of do what we do best.
0: And they're not going to get in our way. And so far, it's been good. Not that Pirate was a small entity prior to Blackstone, but was there a shift at all mentality that now you're rolling with a very heavy hitter behind you? Is there any additional advantages in the marketplace from acquisitions or did it shift your ability to transact in a meaningful way? That's a good question. Not really from a day-to-day perspective. Look, we had a
2: very good run at Pirate, obviously with all the tailwinds that we had in industrial. But it's really changed how we look at assets. As a REIT, it was really all about cash flow and cash flow from steady leases, long-term leases with good quality tenants. But also buildings that didn't require a lot of CapEx. That's just the REIT model. Pirate, we were a little bit entrepreneuring that we did do some development. And that's not something what REITs typically did. But as we look to today, how we look at assets today, it's much more, okay, first of all, there's a few kind of hot buttons that are important for us. Discount to replacement cost. Are we buying for cheaper than it is to build today? And not so much about cap rate. Everyone asks about cap rate. And I'll be honest, (laughs) the deals that we've been buying from a pure cap rate perspective, they're incredibly low. But it's really the mark-to-market cap rate. Yes, we buy low today, but how can we reset the rents, put money into buildings, make it shinier, and really get that NOI back up to where we deem market is today? So with that approach, we've been able to kind of find opportunities where others haven't. And it's caused a huge mindset change, not only for me and my team. When Blackstone first came up here, they were looking at the market and we were really having a tough time looking at the rents that we were forecasting. But they had seen this in LA. They'd seen it in New Jersey. And I think that conviction, to my earlier point, that experience that they had in these markets really helped us here.
1: I'm not sure if this is an appropriate question or not, but I'll ask it Mm -hmm. anyway. Being a REIT, there's a different approach to investment versus some of your counterparts that participate in your space that may be private and or pension funds and life codes that are matching liabilities. Maybe just talk to the motivation for return and just kind of what your obligation is. We're going to get into more specifics of the industrial industry at large, but when you're assessing a building or looking at the returns... I guess I'm just asking in general, like what are the things, I mean, do you have a five bullet point checklist? Like I gotta make sure I check these five things whenever I'm looking to buy a building or dispose of a building or how does that work?
2: If only there were checklists, I think if you were investing with a checklist in front of your face, you probably wouldn't do a lot of investing, especially in this market. But the way we look at assets, I think I touched on kind of the hot buttons, but it's really a total return formula. And really that's an IRR-based formula. We have a seven-year investment horizon, how we look at assets, which is a little bit shorter than the industry norm. But whether it's a $10 million deal or a $100 million deal or a billion dollar deal, it goes through the exact same rigor each time. It starts with a discussion with the senior partners at Blackstone. And to my earlier comment about reservations, I thought I'd have to be writing 50-page memos that people only read the first page again. Not at all. It's quick. Give me the greatest hits. What are the highlights here? What do we feel? What do I feel? And what does my leasing team feel about this asset? They really value our opinion because we're the ones buying it and doing all the work. Yes, there's the math and the metrics, but there's the gut feel and the experience that these guys have in other markets where they think something will work and their conviction, which I'll get into in a little bit about e-commerce and how that's going to change everything.
0: We'll talk about the exit now from some of your investments. What triggers a sale on your side?
2: We have not sold anything.
0: Pirate is held in an open-ended
2: fund, so there is no sunset date. We've just been in buy mode. Back in the REIT days, we would sell for many reasons. Sometimes when the equity markets or the debt markets would shut down, it was a quick way to raise capital. But we have not gotten to that yet, Adam, but more to come in the future. But it's anyone's guess.
0: <laughs> well, I guess one more question on acquisitions before we move mm-hmm. on. Have you transacted in the COVID world?
2: We have. We also had a couple assets that we had gone firm or close to going firm before. I guess doomsday for me was March 13th. That's I was in Florida, and that's when everything started to, you know what, the fan. So we have experience on both sides of COVID. What I thought when COVID happened, it was those dark days that I talked about in March and April. I thought you would see a lot more I wouldn't say distress because obviously the strong fundamentals industrial, but I thought you would see more, I guess, fright or these conversations that we've been having with some of these private owners. Okay, maybe now is the time to sell. But we just haven't seen that yet because I know that prices are where they were pre-COVID, if not higher for quality stuff. There's been a few transactions that have happened to support that, but we are still open for business. Sale leasebacks is something that we do a lot of and we will continue to do a lot of. And I think that's going to be your, especially in the industrial asset class, given the private ownership bias, you're going to see more of that happening. But it is certainly quiet out there. It's a bit of a stalemate. There's still a big spread, I guess, between expectations
1: from sellers and realities of buyers. We may as well. Let's date stamps, July 10th, 2020, of course. And we're all in isolation still. And you know what? We were going to try to get to COVID near the end, but let's just do it now. So you indicated that you're still open for business and that there seems to be activity now. Let's be fair, you're in the preferred asset class of the food groups right now. So I'm not surprised. I think industrial is sort of a hot commodity. Let's just talk about how COVID impacted the industrial market. And then let's lead into just how you feel COVID is going to impact going forward and what changes you feel is going to occur in your particular asset class.
2: Yeah, great question. So our COVID experience as it pertains to kind of our business operations from a tenant perspective, no secret has been very good. We've had north of 90% collections ever since, I guess, March, but it's not easy. Credit to my team. They have almost daily calls at 5pm where they go through each of our tenants, all the property managers and leasing folks have a chance to speak and it's tough. But we've, as compared to other assets, the industrial asset class has done very well. It's been mentioned a few times on these podcasts, there have been some bad actors out there, and luckily we've figured those out. Companies that are clearly open for business have sophisticated e-commerce platforms, but just kind of chose not to pay rent. won't get too much into Secra, but that obviously is probably topic for another podcast, but that's certainly helped tenants at least weather the storm a little bit. How I see things changing... Look, making decisions now for a long time there, tenants couldn't tour spaces. Brokers couldn't go out to tour spaces. You really need to do that. And because of that being prevented from doing so, it's just caused things to take a lot longer to get done. But we are starting to see more activity out there. What I've been seeing and hearing is a lot more short-term requirements out there driven really by two things, mostly by overflow of inventory. All that spring product that tenants were either shipping out to stores, that needs a place to go and more is coming in. So where are you going to put it? But also some tenants have a lack of clarity as to what the future may bring. It wasn't long ago that a 10-year lease in industrial was the norm. Now five almost even seems long. And now we're down to kind of three and under. So We're working with our tenants. Obviously, we have some pain points in our portfolio, tenants that are in the service industry, like your dance studios, your CrossFit gyms. And we don't want their last scrapings from their piggy bank to go to paying rent. We want to work with them and make sure that they come out of this better.
0: Definitely good answer. I mean, I do have a related question to the COVID experience. I guess it actually probably even predate COVID. You know, industrial was having a great run well before COVID came along. Then during COVID, obviously, it really separated itself out as the chosen asset class. Compared to a couple of years ago, have you seen more participants on the investment side, more competition, groups that historically have not got involved in industrial showing up now in COVID-19 or even prior to?
1: Yeah, like like is cap rate starting to poke around the industrial market? Like How does that work? I haven't
2: seen cap rate yet, but the answer is yes, especially in the last few months. Let me backtrack. So... Industrial had this huge ramp up, but with the pricing and the low cap rates, it just couldn't make sense for a lot of yield-driven buyers. But given COVID and all the headwinds that have happened with the office and the retail asset class, if there ever was a time to get into industrial or if you were thinking about it, now is that time, which just means that our pricing and our fundamentals will continue to be strong. So I'm seeing some new entrants into the market when I kind of look at the bid landscape, you hear about a few groups that are poking around for the first time. So what used to be, as I said, the kind of ugly stepsister of the real estate world has now become the asset du jour. And if there's anything that would solidify that demand would be e-commerce. And we've all seen how it has touched every facet of our lives today. And we have the toys and the spaces for that side of the business to
1: thrive. Before we get to e-commerce, Charlie, I want to just kind of stick to a little bit of sort of the fundamentals of industrial. And you mentioned cap rates and rents and lease durations. And we were experiencing it just on the financing side with some of our clients that own industrial access that we finance, where leases were coming due and the client was coming out of a $5.25 net rent that they had signed 10 years ago. All of a sudden, the market rent in the GTA, particularly, where we've seen a significant appreciation. All of a sudden, the net rents, I don't know, eight and a half bucks, nine bucks. And that was just shocking. And we were talking to some leasing brokers that were really struggling, right? Trying to get clients that didn't want to leave their space, but that's the market. How have you managed that? And maybe just kind of talk to that change, that transition. Because think about it, in particularly the industrial space, we haven't seen an appreciation of rent in any particular asset class like that in a while. Like that's significant, right? Over a 10-year space, it's almost 100% appreciation, right?
2: Absolutely. Look, those conversations have been tough, especially for us as we're trying to be the forerunners or at the forefront of that through kind of Blackstone stewardship. It's tough going to a tenant saying, look, your rent has now doubled. But thanks to our record low new supply and our record low vacancy, especially in core markets such as Brampton, Mississauga, there really is nowhere else to go. Not that we want tenants to leave and they can't afford the rent. But when you peel back the layers and you look at rents as a percentage of a company's P&L or expense statement, at $5 rent, which you're right, a lot of these tenants have been coming off of, it is minuscule. It's sometimes less than 10%. So we know tenants can afford it. But the biggest cost to any of these companies is labor. So in those markets that I just mentioned, yes, you can move for probably cheaper rent to the hinterland, more of the suburbs but you're going to be paying higher wages. You don't have that pool of labor. Your, your employees need to drive to work, so on and so forth. So we had to educate tenants. They're starting to realize it. I'm very lucky at Pure. We do all our in-house leasing. We do use brokers on select projects, but the amount of information and comps that we generate ourselves in our portfolio really helped those discussions with tenants. Not easy, but we've been getting there.
1: And let me just add context, I think, for anybody that may not be familiar with the asset class or maybe from a national perspective. From a financing perspective, it was always one of those curiosities to me. There was a time there, three, four, five years ago, where Toronto top rents in the industrial market in the GTA, even for new bills, was sort of six bucks per square foot. The exact same property in Calgary was $9, 10 $11 per square foot. The same property in BC was $9, 10 11 $12 per square foot. So for whatever reason, Toronto had lag. And I think part of that challenge that leasing agents were always experiencing was the industrial tenancy by virtue of just what it is, is often local, right? So they just weren't used to any other market. So they didn't have the comparison that I think industrial rents at 10 to 12 bucks is probably adequate. But for whatever reason, the Toronto market lagged well behind. So I guess I'm adding on to your sentiment that they can afford it, and they were affording it in those local markets all over
0: the country. But for whatever reason, the GTA had lagged significantly. I've always been perplexed when I first started in real estate. I started industrial real estate in 2010. You struggled to get five dollar rents then. And when I heard six months into my career that Ottawa was getting eleven dollar rents, I just couldn't wrap my head around eleven dollar rents in Ottawa. And then you've got four and a quarter a few kilometers from Pearson International Airport. It made no sense to me. I mean, it's been explained since, and I do see the rationale, but my jaw hit the floor when I heard that. And then you hear about a burger rent before oil crashed and your head really exploded. Absolutely. Yeah,
2: I wish I had an answer on why they were always stuck where they were. And Blackstone had that exact same question when they looked at us and said, why does it have to be this way? Obviously, vacancy help getting below two percent. Uh, certainly, you need that, but you need to spark the match. And once that was sparked, which us and others have shown, especially in the last twenty-four months, sky's the limit.
0: On the topic of tenants, from an investment optimization standpoint, what do you look for in a building or a portfolio to manage risks that you see? Single tenant versus multi-tenant buildings, different tenant types, different tenant lease terms, and obviously, of course, you respond to the market, and you can't wave a magic wand to make it happen but what's ideal for you
2: i'm waiting for that magic wand but good question couple things we have no kind of set criteria a building type or tenant type the one thing with multis for a while they do take a lot of work and it's a different caliber of tenant but replacement cost it's not economic to build those 18 foot clear brick buildings that you see in pine valley anymore or in Vaughan, anywhere else in the country In terms of when we look at tenancies, obviously, there's the standard checks we do, the credit checks. We try to have a tenant interview with them, really understand their business. But really, since COVID, it's kind of given us a whole new lens. Not only the KPIs of the company, it's does this tenant have a business that can withstand a second wave or another pandemic? Does this tenant have a product that is defensive? Is this tenant's business going to be deemed essential or non-essential by the government? All these types of things that maybe we should have looked at before, but I think COVID has, like anything, has given us great foresight into going forward. And just on to your point, Adam, about buildings we look at, you don't have the luxury of finding the perfect building. And tenants these days don't have that luxury either with our low supply. Other markets, yeah, tenants may choose buildings because they don't like the color, but in especially the GTA and Vancouver and Montreal, they don't have those options. So tenants are having to make do. It's less about clear height. It's more about access to labor. Is it close to dense city cores? And if you look at kind of how our cities were built, if you want to check those boxes, you're going to have to go to older buildings. So it's really the physical look and feel, yes, clear height's important and doors and but that's really changed in the last few years for us. Okay,
1: Charlie, I'm going to put you on the spot. 200,000 square foot buildings. One is single tenant long-term lease at, say, 7 bucks a foot. The other is 100 bays at 1,000 square foot each at 10 bucks per square foot. Which do you choose? Are they side by yeah, side? Yeah let's, Same say, market? Let's call them, yeah, let's call them sister buildings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I say both? <laughs> <laughs> let's play that out, right? Because you got the risk of 100% vacancy if that one tenant goes. Versus you're going to have the more stability. And I guess you're always going to have the leasing role for that 100 units, but clearly more consistent cash flow, right?
2: On the 200,000-foot building, which is still a relatively big building for our markets, there's just, given the lack of availability, I'd probably choose that one.
1: No, no, they're I, the same size. Sorry, two 100,000-square-foot buildings, same size. Just One's 1,000-unit 1, bays, and the other one's you uh, know, one single tenant. But you got the one tenant on a 10 year lease versus a whole bunch of tenants.
2: Can I cut up the single tenant into a bunch of smaller <laughs> bays? Probably do that.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, this is kind of fun. Percent, you could just build whatever you wanted. Land's free. What are you building?
2: My perfect asset would be in those core markets, like the Downs Views, the South Etobicoke the lease sides. I would build a four or five tenant higher clear height, smaller bay, good dock doors, good parking, something that really shines above the competing assets. I think that's what a lot of companies are looking to do right now. And I think that's the trend that you're going to see continue. Yes, it's going to be difficult. Yes, you're going to have to play the politics game, the planning game. But that's the way the, the world's going. I actually hate the word industrial real estate. All my friends and family think I'm in factories. And I think if we can really work on focusing on the job creation and the essential services that these buildings provide rather than a smoky factory, I think you're going to get a lot of public support in these areas that do get a lot of NIMBYs. So that would be my perfect real estate to answer your question.
0: While we're building this perfect real estate in our minds, any thoughts to including two-story industrial? Something we're hearing is, we'll call it cutting edge, super rare. Any thought to making this mystical building that Aaron's constructed a two-story <laughs> industrial
2: yes in the right market Vancouver? It's, yeah Vancouver it's starting to happen we're starting to hear more rumblings about it here in Toronto it's obviously been the norm in Asia and United Kingdom and Europe for a long time now I think technologies have evolved it's still incredibly expensive to build and it only works in certain areas. And there are compromises for sure. There's other considerations from flow of traffic and employees and elevators that you have to consider, but it is something you're going to see more and more of. And I find it really cool. And waiting for that first project to kick off that we could all talk about for years.
1: Charlie, I've got a personal question for you. It's close to home. Let me describe it quickly. I'm in a residential neighborhood, of course, in South Etobicoke. For those of you not from Toronto, it's kind of in the West End, 50-minute drive to downtown. But I'm immediately adjacent. My residential neighborhood is immediately adjacent to a large industrial and sometimes heavy industrial. There's a concrete factory not far from me and a Campbell's soup manufacturing large, large asset that was just transacted. I suspect you know the one I'm talking about. But the reason I'm going here is because you talked about community involvement and NIMBYism and just what challenge that poses when you're trying to reposition an asset. And so you had talked about how you're rare for a REIT, but you actually do some development. And so maybe my question is a little bit obscure. But you know, if you've got this type of asset adjacent to a residential neighborhood, that needs repositioning because it is kind of it's heavy industrial because it's a you know manufacturing warehouse that needs to transition to warehouse or employment use. Do you just kind of steer away from that as a REIT? Or how do you kind of approach those types of situations?
2: If you want to play in the game and you want to take that risk, for lack of a better word, to reposition old industrial sites into modern facilities, you need to figure that element out. I mean, to my earlier point about trying to sell the community that what we're trying to do here is better than having an old derelict factory that produces no jobs, produces no tax base, and we will work with you, whether that's through design, whether that's through noise restrictions, or berming, or landscaping, or green area dedication. I mean, there's a whole... Litany of consultants that are out there that we use and others use as well that make a career out of that. So I'm definitely not an expert in the city planning process, and we don't have a ton of experience at Pirate of that yet. But you know, it's something that we're thinking more and more of not only from an operations perspective, but a staffing perspective. And we as a group, all groups that do own projects in these dense core locations or sites in these core locations need to really work together, find out what best practices are, and really form a cohesive unit and how we approach the public. Because it does have a stigma, industrial, no doubt. And it always will. But if everyone that's a NIMBY that's getting their food from online, if they want it faster, here's your opportunity, right?
1: (laughs) Sorry, Adam, before you go to the Yeah, uh, no, no, no. I mean ironically you say that across the street is one of those like cold storage grocery facility distribution centers. And just to tie the whole thing up, it was Quadro that acquired that asset, and I'm pretty sure they're building just a large sort of warehouse facility for the last mile. And I think that leads into Adam's next question.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've focused on tenants and the uses and taking dirty old factories and turning them into modern masterpieces. I mean, e-commerce, of course, has accelerated rapidly during COVID-19 <laughs> So how much do you value it as an investor, having a cutting-edge, high-tech building, e-commerce tenants? Obviously, there's a rent premium, but there's also a build cost associated with that. So how much value do you place on an e-commerce building when you're looking at a potential investment?
2: When you say e-commerce building, immediately in my head is specialization, conveyor systems, mezzanines. I don't mean multi-level. I mean sort of cutting your building in half with a pick-and-pack area and some we're seeing given our climate and efficiency is drive-through doors having vans come in and park and get loaded and come out look we always look at assets and i think most investors do okay if the current tenant here leaves how do we reposition this asset without having to tear it down does it have the bones to accommodate a wider variety of uses than that current tenant so I think if that type of asset came to market today it would get a ton of interest. It's very on trend, but yeah, it does have to serve a purpose in the future for us.
1: When you're going through your IR calculations, and I'm going to throw a whole bunch of things at you and maybe just kind of talk them through one by one, from cold storage facilities to cross-dock, as you kind of mentioned, the fulfillment centers, obviously urban industrial is a big thing right now, just being close to where people live How are you factoring in those differentiators? Like, How do you input those into your formulas on a different perspective? Industrial is so complex. Like, It's not the same as an apartment building. Where apartment buildings, you kind of just know what it is. Every single one is more or less the same. Industrial has got such a wide variety of uses. How do you create a formula to calculate for all those differentiators?
2: I'm still working on that formula now. Look, at the end of the day, it's really what your land value is. When you're buying an industrial, from my appraisal background, 80% of the value of your purchase or your holdings is the land. 20% is the bricks and mortar. So maybe the building doesn't work today. Maybe it's a bit quirky. Who knows? There could be difficulties leasing in the future. But if you can buy in at a land basis that will always stick and will always hopefully appreciate, I think you're going to do okay. It is tough when it comes to the specialized stuff, not only from a buy perspective, we all know how tight our market is, both from a transaction volume standpoint, but also from a comps, leasing comps. It's hard to kind of say this is the rent and this is what you should underwrite because down the street is a similar building and that's what it rented for. That's a real appraisal mindset that I've kind of been trained on. But yeah, to answer your question, in those types of instances, it's a really focus on land.
1: In your formula, how much of a gut-ometer do you have to be able to just skew the IRR? My gut's really strong about this one, so the IRR goes up by 300 percentage points.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that gut uh, would not feel good uh, that evening if I used it. Or to get really geeky, it's like the B and the MX plus B.
0: It's what do we need to believe, I guess. so. (laughs) Well, The funny thing is, too, Aaron used to work in credit at First National and if a sales guy like myself came to him and said, I just feel good about this, he would give zero weight to my gutometer. <laughs> so it's funny to hear him say that. One more industrial trend to ask you about before we let you go. We've gone on for a while, and I'll say it's because we've been negligent in covering industrial for quite a while, so that's why we've got so much to talk about. But the other big trend that I guess we first saw at Weston has migrated east is industrial condo conversions. There's a couple of players now engaging it in a major way. And from what we can see, it's it's very profitable, but we know that you've done at least once. We'd love to hear your thoughts on, is it worth the effort and do you see more of this coming down the pipeline?
2: Yeah, I'd say it's a bit more prevalent out in Vancouver for many different reasons, obviously just scarcity of supply and smaller building size, but we did have experience with industrial condos. A couple years ago, we converted a 10 or 15 unit building in Vaughan, went through that process. Not going to lie, it took a lot of work, not only from a legal perspective, you know, severing title to each individual units, but from a physical standpoint, separating hydros. But there are a few groups that focus on that. There's some new entrants to our market in the GTA that are building purpose-built industrial condos. Because when you look at the land prices and the building costs that aren't slowing down, it's really the only way to make sense of the numbers. You know, to speak numbers for a second, Vancouver up around $500 per square foot. Toronto, probably three to $400 a square foot when we sold our condo units for kind of mid-200s of a couple years ago. And we were blown away by the prices. But look, these are smaller 5,000, 6,000 square foot units. So cheaper than buying a semi-detached house in Toronto. I think you're going to see more of it and is a really good way, at least in our instance, a good kind of profit on cost from what we bought the building for, the work we put in and what we
1: eventually sold it for. Charlie, don't take this the wrong way, but your job has been easy the last number of years because of has been appreciating so much. It feels like it's hard to miss, right? I say that facetiously and don't take that the wrong way. Aaron,
0: you're in apartments. You've had it pretty easy too. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Oh, oh, for sure. Oh no, trust me. I've had it easier. Let me tell you, I'm just joshing it. My question is really though, what's the ceiling on rents? Maybe if you want to go around, I know you guys are heavy kind of BC, GTA, Montreal.
2: Where do they end? I was told, we were looking at a deal at one of my former employers, and I think we were underwriting 7 or $8. This was shiny new stuff in Mississauga. And I think I was told by someone, rents will never, ever go above $8 a foot here. Now they're doing $14, $15, $16 deals at that same park. So I've been told so many times that, oh, they'll never go higher. They'll never go higher. But the last two years have shown us that the sky's the limit. Look, in industrial, there's going to be a break-even point. What that is, I don't know. A lot of smarter people can kind of answer that question. But until robots come and take over everyone's jobs, with labor costs being so important and companies focused to keep that down, and the small piece of the pie that industrial rents still take over, even at $10 a square foot, I think you're going to continue to see uh, upwards escalations. And we didn't talk much about new supply today, but we all know that it's low, but it's just harder and harder to build. And that means tenants
0: have far less options. So
2: I don't know, will 20 bucks be the norm out there one day? I don't want to say no.
0: Yeah, time tends to solve all those barriers as we continue on. I do like the idea that it is limitless, and as robots take over our jobs, it frees up more money to pay rent, I suppose. There you go. Charlie, this has been a great conversation, and maybe I'll apologize again to our industrial-focused audience members, because it's been a while since we covered industrial. So I was very glad, when this opportunity with Charlie came up to Discuss what you're doing. So remember, everybody, we do have the after show coming up next, but I want to thank Charlie for coming on the show today. This has been great. I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Charlie. Great conversation. Bye. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show. This is a newer format for us, but it'd be great to hear Aaron's thoughts in a more call it open environment. Uh, <laughs> well, we thought what, about calling it like sweet. unplugged or something, right? Where we may be less filtered than we
1: are when we've got to maintain some sort of professionalism while we've got all of these guests that come on. <laughs> so, the industrial asset class is just so fascinating to me. And we didn't really get into it with Charles, but it is so bifurcated, right? Like you shouldn't even really be calling it industrial because they call it heavy and light industrial. But I mean, the differences are just so dramatic. We kind of touched on it. Like cross dock facilities. I don't even think most people appreciate that where you've got to have loads can come in on one side and get filtered through the facility and then get popped into a truck on the other side. So you got to have like bays on both sides of the building. You've got to have the ability for trucks to move around each other on either side. you got to have a ton of land right? But from a fulfillment last mile e-commerce perspective, having that functionality where things can kind of
0: flow through is so valuable. Actually, the time you process through, there's a formula and a value attached to it. So they can tell you down to the penny what value you're adding on with cross-stock performance.
1: So from a landlord's perspective, like, what's that? A quarter point on a cap rate, a half point on a cap rate? Like, What do you pay for that? What rents can you charge? I guess there's cold storage. That's got to be growing in demand, right? But the cost for running a cold storage, like if you're talking about your cam and you got to keep a hundred thousand square foot storage facility at five degrees so your tomatoes don't get too ripe. How do you oh, value that? Like it's, there's just so much to it. It's not like any other asset. Like it, it is a totally distinct and unique asset. Your retail office, apartments, you kind of just, you get it. Industrial is
0: totally unique. Because the uses have to be so specific one of the coolest days I had in real estate. We all do a lot of property tours. You see a lot of property and they're all interesting in their own way. But a couple years ago, I went and visited a cold storage facility and I'll try and describe it. I'll screw up the metrics, but call it eight or nine stories high, totally clear span, freezing cold. They hand you really intense parkas before you come in to walk around because this is truly a frozen cold storage facility. And they have Robot sorters moving around, taking pallets off all over the place. It's very, very impressive. I cannot imagine the cost of setting it up and running it, but of course, you know, it is very profitable. But after touring so much real estate that does resemble each other in a meaningful way, that was a day that really stands out as being completely different. I was very, very impressed with the whole operation. And it was huge. It was enormous. One of the things that Charles said I wish we had kind of expanded
1: on and I don't know the answer to this. It's just how different players in the marketplace approach industrial. It doesn't feel like the life codes and the pension funds are really in that space. And maybe because it's not easy and consistent like office and apartments are in particular. But clearly, Pirates figured it out and they're specialized in it. They're doing very, very well. You know
0: you're doing really, really well when Blackstone steps in and decides to throw a hunk of money behind you. Yeah. You referred to industrial a couple of times as the ugly stepsister, and. He was referring, of course, to no recent time, but I could definitely relate in 2010 when I started as an industrial broker here in the GTA. and Yeah, you'd have to show a property 50 times before you got any sort of signed offer in front of you. But now a lot of the guys I met in those days have gone on now to such amazing careers and an asset class that's just exploding. It's amazing what's happened in, in the last few years. And yeah, of course, the big thing was the rent dam finally bursting, at least here in the GTA, that there seemed to be this artificial barrier of five bucks that no landlord dared surpass. And then all of a sudden, you're seeing leases for sizable buildings in the $8, $9 range that seemed inconceivable just six or seven years ago.
1: One of the things we didn't really touch on, just the demand and why, I mean, he called it the ugly sibling, but I think it's going to end up being the all-star of the food groups if it's not already. And we talked about e-commerce, of course, at length, but we didn't talk about, you know, when borders are closed, and this sort of deglobalization that's occurring and just how supply chains are now being localized, there's going to be more and more demand that some of the, the outsourced, whether it's China or America or Europe, where the globalization and the supply chains have been outsourced, they're going to come back. You, you assume, anyway, it would appear that they're going to come back. And he touched on it. There's not a lot of supply coming on. So you've got all sorts of new demand and no new supply. And he mentioned sort of 20 bucks and wasn't willing to say no to that. Like maybe it's thirty bucks. I don't know. Like where does it go? Like thirty dollar industrial rent sounds just asinine, but but yeah,
0: I've been wrong a lot. So maybe that is something that we're going to see in the foreseeable future. I mean, you're not going to see it in Canada today, but I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Any American listeners, and I know we've got a few, is in the states currently. You'll find thirty dollar rents in key last mile locations for significant urban spots. The metrics there. In, you know, if you're last mile for anything in LA, your value per square foot for the building is numbers that we can't even conceive of here. And your rents as well are also way up there. So it is possible. And and that economy functions well. That's not going to inhibit people from continuing to use industrial space because it's happening right now. And I
1: asked that question, that personal, quote unquote, personal question about the site kind of adjacent to the residential neighborhood I'm in. And I wish I had asked them what kind of rents that they had pro forma, because after we hit stop on the original. Recorded with Charles, he'd said he'd had kind of looked at that site. And I bet you they are projecting fifteen, sixteen, seventeen bucks per square foot. For those that are in Toronto, it's at the base of Islington, maybe, maybe two kilometers south of the gardener. So you are literally three lights from the gardener, and then you can go north of the 427 up to the airport, or you can go east into the city or west into Mississauga. Like it really is. Talk about last mile, right? Like you really can't find industrial sites much closer to the downtown core on the west end. And of course on the east end, there's some sites sort of in the east York DVP neighborhood. And you're right. Like maybe that's the site we're going to see. Or those are the sites we're going to see that sort of 25, maybe 20,
0: 25, $30 square foot rents. Where you live is perfectly situated for that purpose in that 50 years ago, 60 years ago, that would have been the outskirts of Toronto, and they had a lot of industrial uses, 14-foot clear, 12-foot clear, shipping aprons that were built for trucks that are two-thirds the size of what they are now. And so you have this industrial space that's pretty non-functional, but just located beautifully for surfacing so many key areas of Toronto. And so the pro forma to knock one of those down and build a last-mile depot, those sites must be getting picked off by the big players. In, in record numbers, because it is so unique.
1: This is maybe our last thought, Adam, but we've been talking about it. And we've seen it. I think it's a curiosity in the industry about these two-story industrial facilities. Charlie indicated that it's kind of the norm in lots of places around the world. But I think, you know, in Canada, or maybe it's just because technology has allowed for sort of an evolution where you've got these robots, you can build a 50-foot clear building You don't need people going up on a ramp to pick stuff up. You've got robots just zooming around, grabbing things. So why build two stories? Just get rid of that flooring in the middle and you can still have the same amount of material at the same capacity now that you've got the technology to have those sort of robots running around just grabbing things and sort of fulfilling orders, so to speak. I think it was Alan McKenzie that actually talked about visiting a site like that not too long ago, just the speed at which those robots zoom around grabbing things and filling
0: orders and putting them on conveyor belts and just the efficiency of what the guts of the e-commerce world looks like. The other thing with two-story industrial is if you can make a business work on the second story of an industrial building, why not on the ninth floor of an industrial building? Why not do high-rise industrial? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess probably the biggest challenge is you need ramp to get trucks up there.
1: I guess you maybe figured another way to lower and raise the truck bays or the truck containers or whatever
0: it is. You heard it here first in the podcast. High-rise industrial. <laughs> Coming
1: to a neighborhood near you. Yeah. Is that our last thought? We'll end off I sounding so. like idiots yeah. on this yeah, one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay yeah. perfect. If you are tuning into the after shows, get used to us sounding like idiots. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP Holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.